Josh Haston here, host of Reality Bites Radio. Can a left-wing member of Knesset be skeptical about the peace process? Well, Independence Party member Anat Wilf is in fact pessimistic. Hear what she has to say on my show this week, Reality Bites Radio with Josh Haston, and catch the other broadcasts live Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, 10 a.m. Israel time, only on IsraelNationalRadio.com. of Hashem, His Torah, Israel, and the Noahide Nations. Folks, thank you once again for joining us here on the Noahide Nation Hour. Uh, it's both myself and Adam Penrod. Adam, how you doing? Well, I'm doing pretty good. Ray, how are you? Um, I'm doing okay. This uh, show's got me a little worked up, but <laughs> I think I'm going to make it through, uh, because when we're talking off, off mic about this uh in the in the nature of it you know it can be scary for a lot of folks but before we get into the scary side let's go ahead and uh uh, thank everybody once again for listening and we also do appreciate your emails so uh, for you folks who don't have our email address uh, please jot it down and feel free to send us uh, an email with your comments questions anything at all and that's at noahide at israelnationalradio.com boy I don't know about this show, Adam. Folks, we've got a, an extreme show. How's that? An extreme show. There <laughs> this we go. is an extreme show. and For extremists. For extremists and for those who want to be an extremist. Um, this is kind of about uh, becoming a, a Noahide and the extreme decisions uh, that have to be made, along with the extreme circumstances and situations that arise from making such a decision and making those changes in, in one's life. And Adam and I thought this would be kind of a good thing because we know we talk to a lot of folks out there that aren't necessarily Noahides yet, but they're you know questioning their belief system and uh, want to, you know, maybe become a Noahide, and um, and maybe they're serious about becoming a Noahide, but uh, don't know how to approach the whole family thing, the whole wife thing, uh, the whole church thing. Uh, you just never know. So we call those extremes because both Adam and I have been on that extreme roller coaster ride, right? And and seen lots of Noahides. New Noahides really perform what I would call a knee-jerk reaction to their newfound zealotry you know they they uh they they react towards everyone else with this uh, attempt to reach a peak of holiness that you know maybe they're not quite ready for yet maybe they're and maybe they've even misunderstood what it is they're trying to accomplish right themselves right well and you know i i gosh i remember i think i remember uh, going back to you know actually making that decision and at the time we were in the Messianic movement, I was a board member and uh, actually you know, led the worship team. So, I mean, for me to make the decision, uh, you know, it was quite harrowing. I mean, we had uh, basically parted ways with some uh, family members in, in California. And, you know, you never like to do that. But by the same token, uh, it just seemed to kind of come along with the territory, whether you 
you know, like it or not, it gets to a point where you're kind of, you're not, during your family discussions, family gatherings, you're talking about mostly family and everything but religion. Whereas before, religion was just part of it because we were all on the same team. Right. And now that we're not on the same team, you know, it's very difficult to want to you know, try to correct somebody else's playbook during a family gathering. So, And really the question comes down to how does a, a serious, committed Noahide interact with those around them who are neither serious nor Noahide or possibly even hostile to the, the new beliefs that they're taking on? How do you how do you react? How do you act, and how do you interact in a way befitting of a student of the Torah? Right, and let's remember the individual we're talking about uh, is basically a, a, a new baby. I mean, they're just now crawling, and all they really have is their excitement for Torah. They have, however, made the decision. That what I was doing before is wrong, and what I'm headed towards now is right. So let's kind of start there, that these are the brand new kids in the school, and what happens at that point? And I think we're talking off mic uh, about, you know, what does somebody do with their marriage? It's a a tough thing. You you, uh, want to be committed, but the person who knows you the best... And the person you spend the most time with every day is they're blocking your path. Or you imagine sometimes even they're blocking your path. I think a lot of it is imagining because we haven't gotten to the point yet that they want to share it with their spouse. Right. You know, they're still in this whole thing of a, of a, a newfound revelation. And as much as they want to share it, they don't know how the spouse is going to react. Right. And that can be quite the dilemma for uh, you know the the new Noahide. Sure. Well, I'll tell you. Number one, the the worst thing that the new Noahide, when he does want to share it or she wants to share it, worst thing you can do is go up to your your spouse and announce that they're going to hell, <laughs> and that uh, they need to get on board with this whole program, or it's divorce paper time, baby. Yeah, I would, I would have to venture a guess that would be the last thing you'd want to do. <laughs> you would think, you know, you would think most people would realize that, but it's it's oddly enough, it seems like it's almost the first thing a lot of people are actually doing is that they go, well, I have this new set of beliefs. I guess I should just divorce my wife or my husband, you know, and um, you know, God forbid such a thing should happen. Hashem created us with our perfect uh, uh, partner. The, the, the rabbi said, what has God been doing since he created the world? I mean, he created the world in, in, in six days. You know, he's had a lot of free time since then. So what, is he, <laughs> what has he been up to? He's been matchmaking. Right. So when you're the person you're married with, Hashem intended you to be with that person. I'm not saying that there aren't situations in which divorce is inevitable or people, it just becomes the only uh, solution. But I will tell you that it is absolutely the last thing that should ever cross your mind. It's absolutely the last thing you should even, you know, think to consider. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you one of the things that helped me the best, and I think that uh, uh, others that I've shared it with, people who are also struggling in their marriages, especially on issues like this, Sam Peake, about two weeks before I got married, gave me a book called The Garden of Peace by Shalom Arush. Uh, translated by Rabbi Laser Brody. And the two weeks before I got married, I studied that thing. 
<laughs> and every now and then when things are kind of going a little bit haywire, I go back and I reread the book because usually it's because I'm not doing something I should be doing. And I'll tell you what, every person that I've shared this book with who's committed themselves to using it improved their marriage dramatically. Now, you and Melinda were both Noahides. Absolutely. So you're kind of on the same page from the get-go. Right. Now, how does this book translate for those who uh, were, you just became a new Noahide and the other one is dug in, in, let's say, Christianity? Because the first thing you have to recognize is that the person that you're married to, you're supposed to be with that person. Generally speaking, you're supposed to Hashem put you with that person. There's something about the person you're married to that their personality and who they are helps correct you in some way, helps make you a better person. If you're having difficulty as a Noahide or whatever, and you're getting that difficulty from your, your, the opposite spouse, that's because Hashem's trying to teach you something. He's trying to give you a little bit of a clue and help you along. And one of the best things I can tell you is, is that a lot of marriages suffer for one very simple reason, and that's selfishness. A lot of times it's selfishness. And sometimes when we take on this, this, uh, this new role as devout, zealous, B'nai Noach, Baal Shiva, you know, even Jews who, turn, who aren't religious become religious suddenly, what happens is, is then it becomes sort of a, sometimes they don't recognize that where they think they're being zealous for Hashem, they've actually found something that is absolutely important to them that they want something that they want, and they're not considering the other person. I've met people who got married to a person, and when they were married, both of them were Christians. And when they got married, they said, you know what, we are committed to be Christians forever. And this this is a Christian relationship. And then, you know, five years down the road, suddenly one of them discovers the Noahide laws. You know, just think about, see, this is where you have to think about the other person. You know, you, when you got married... You said, we're in this together forever, going down this road. Right. And now suddenly you're changing the game on them. Right. Now, the fact of the matter is, is that this is why you don't make vows. Oh, right. Yes, absolutely. Right. You have to be very careful on what you say. Secondly, you know, uh, people, when they make these kind of proclamations, sometimes they're not always so serious. They don't really know what they're, you know, even, you know, people take for granted sometimes their religion. Right. The word love is such commonplace that there's really no meaning left in it other than just a simple definition. Yeah. So it's so you have to as a person who has who has actually thrown themselves into learning Torah, has embraced the truth of Torah, the way of Torah, you have to at the same time because part of all the paths of the Torah are peace. They're peaceful paths. It's a you know, the psalmist tells us this, this is something you have to keep in mind. That the Torah Wants to, to that if you're studying the Torah and internalizing the Torah properly, then you're going to pursue a path of peace in your life, in whatever relationship you're going down. So when it comes to you and your spouse, if there's anybody in the world deserving of patience, it's got to be your spouse. I mean, this person has committed themselves to you for the long term. They they know all your failings. And they've put up with it and stuck with you anyway. So you have to be very, very patient. Just consider, you made this promise. And now because of the truth, you're unable to keep that promise. But, you know, the fact is that the promise they were really making, Ray, was they were making a promise to, to remain faithful to Hashem. 
they really wanted to serve Hashem. And that's right. where, that was the origin of the promise that they're making together. Mm-hmm. And they have to keep that in mind. This, your, your spouse is now in shock. They don't know what to do with you. Well, I'm, there is a process. And I think the, the first part of the process is shock. And I think that kind of, depending on the person, could immediately roll into, oh, my gosh, have you lost your mind? Sure. And, and, and now we start rolling up the ladder of anger. Uh, because when people really start thinking about it, if they're not looking for the truth, they think they've found the truth already, mm-hmm. and now you're coming and telling them that for the past you know, 25, 30 years, whatever it is, that you've been living a lie, I, I, you know, that's kind of hard to swallow in one shot. So, uh, and I've heard people do both, where they have just come right out and said it, and it's because they love their spouse so much that they want them to know this truth. But they're not right? ready for it. Exactly. And you have to really move along, I think, gently. Put on your, your seatbelt and, whoa, slow down. Because otherwise, you're going to run yourself right out of the house. And let's also talk about, you know, parents. You know, your parents raised you from very young, and they instilled certain values in you. And it, through the process of looking for truth, you've had to reject some of those values. Right. That's very difficult for a parent. For a parent, whenever they see you going away from what they believe or for what they, they've tried to teach you, they look at it as a failing on their part. Exactly. So you're not really dealing with an argument. And this is where people make the mistake. What they think is, you know what, the reason why so-and-so isn't accepting uh, my new belief system. The reason they're not embracing it themselves is they're not being logical. They're not really thinking about my arguments, right? They they they, they really haven't read Isaiah, Isaiah seven fourteen properly from a Jewish perspective. If they did that, no doubt they would be joining me on this on this journey. That's not really what's going on. I don't care, you know, what the issue is. If you're dealing with an atheist, if you're dealing with a Christian, if you're dealing with whatever, right. the fact of the matter is, is more often than not. When you're talking to somebody about a big switch in beliefs or whatever, there's always an emotional component there that you have to address first before you can talk about logic and before you can talk about reasons and arguments and so forth. And I think part of the, well, I'm I'm just going to say that that first emotion uh, tends to put them on the defensive Mm -hmm. because they want to defend the position that they believed in for all these years. And, I mean, it's a natural, it's a human nature thing to do, mm-hmm. to defend your position. And obviously when, you know, it's human uh, uh, nature, you want to you be able to talk about it, but you, you can't talk about it because emotion and rational thought do not mix. You can't, you can't make anything out of it. I mean, it doesn't make any sense because one is emotional, one is rational, and therefore you, you're never going to find the, yeah. you're never going to have a meeting of the minds. Probably the most important thing you need to do is reestablish for the person that you're trying to talk to, mother, father, brother, sister, spouse, whatever, that first and foremost, you still love them. Exactly. And that you are committed to the relationship you have. It's important to you. And that, uh, you know, you're not doing this because you dislike them or disrespect them or don't hold them in any kind of uh, a proper regard. In fact, it's just the opposite. Right. And if you can kind of help them get over this emotional hurdle, 
if you can show them that you're taking every consideration you can on their behalf, well, you're going to help inspire in them a love of Torah. Because they're going to start seeing, they're going to see in you something amazing. They're going to see that you have a belief system, but as important as that is, your your, your first and foremost priority is, is, is trying to make sure that they're okay and that your your relationship is okay with them and that they're important. And you show them that importance, and that's really going to get to them. Right. It's almost like recultivating your relationship. Yeah. Because this is such a, uh, an extreme move, an extreme decision, that you almost have to uh, daily reinforce this idea of, I love you, I love you, I, lo- I love you. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, they're going to, I mean, they'll talk themselves right into this, a situation of I, I, he doesn't love me. Uh, I'm wrong. Uh, I've been wrong. All these. I mean, they they turn in on themselves, is, and that's a dangerous way to go too. Because now you're talking depression. But I think the main thing to work on at this point is just share the love. Yeah. Because right now is not a time to share Torah. I mean, not in the sense where you're 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 teaching. Yeah. I mean, share Torah in the sense of this is who I am and who I'm becoming, and start with the love. Because yeah. if Hashem uh, does anything, love. <laughs> I mean, He does everything in love. So we have to do the same thing. I mean, we're made in His image. You know what? We better better act that way. Absolutely. And I think that would be probably the number one suggestion is do not jump into this feet first, make your proclamation, and then try to change them right then and there. Because it isn't going to work. No. I, I, I've never heard anyone tell me that that has worked. Right. No, I, I've never seen it. I've never heard of it either. No. And I've heard both sides. Yeah. So, I, 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 you know, I've never heard anyone tell me that that worked. On the other hand, if you sit back, and do nothing. I mean, I've talked to people who've been married for years, one of them being a Noahide, the other one being whatever. whatever. And because they're so resistant that the spouse doesn't really find out. And so you're almost living this secret life, <laughs> uh, which, you know what, that can be very, very frustrating. So I don't think you want to go to that extreme either. Uh, but somewhere in your prayer life with Hashem, uh, you need to find out when is that perfect time. And and just you know, beg for help, beg for mercy that uh, he presents you with that perfect time, with the right things to say at that time. You know, I, I personally, personally believe that the perfect time really is a culmination of the time you've put into developing and changing yourself from what you were into what Hashem wants you to be, according to Torah. You know, the more you spend focusing on yourself, drawing yourself closer to Hashem, emulating Hashem, becoming more like Hashem, uh, performing uh, the positive and negative commandments of whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Noahide, because there are positive commandments also. Right. Um, You know, I think that Number one, if you're working on yourself and you're earnestly working to change yourself, your your spouse is going to see it. Your, your folks are going to see it. Your brothers and sisters are going to see it. Your friends are going to see it. And that really then becomes the best kind of conversation to have with people. 
that's the conversation where everybody wins and nobody feels like they have to accept anything. They accept it naturally. They can see the change. It's exactly right. And you know what's going to happen is without you saying anything, they're going to ask the question that you need them to ask. And at that moment, you need to realize that if they're asking you, then they want to know. They are now seeking earnestly rather than being coerced (laughs) into something that they otherwise wouldn't want any part of. Right. And it just, you know, puts a strain on the relationship. So uh, I, I would have to say that if you can just sit back, show the love, uh, that's the best way to go. And I think the other thing we need to probably address, Adam, is kids. Sure. You know, we've, we've kind of got the idea of the wife, you know, and, and how we, you know, I shouldn't say wife, but spouse, wife or husband, it could go either way. Um, but the kids, uh, you know, that's a, such a, a critical part. Some are so young they don't know the difference. Others are old enough to literally say to you, well, have, have you been lying to me all this time? And Sure. You know, it's kind of like, well, what about Santa Claus kind of <laughs> argument, you know? It's, yeah. well, yeah, okay, I was lying to you though that whole time. But, you know, there's ways to handle this uh, also. Um, and it's not always easy because kids, you know, especially if they're teenagers, they are tough. They are tough. I mean, they've got their own way. They pretty much think they know it all at that time. And uh, it's very difficult because you're also giving them the ammunition to totally back away from God altogether. Well, if it wasn't this all these years, why should I now believe that being a Noahide is it? What if you're wrong there, too? And guess what? Well, and first off, I would like to say that I don't know that Saying that they were lying is, the, is 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 correct because Jeremiah it says you know that the nations will recognize our fathers inherited lies, and it's an interesting thing because it doesn't say my my parents lied to me, it's that even my folks in, inherited lies. Right. With the, they in all good conscience were teaching them teaching me what they knew to be true at the time. So that is what that that's the way you should look at it and Oh yeah, that's a wonderful thing to look at that right. way. When we come back from the break, <laughs> I'm going to share with you a little story uh about one of uh, uh our kids and uh one of our our grandchildren. Okay. And the the end result of that and these are the kinds of things you can expect from teenagers. I mean, you can think about it however you want to. Uh, but when it comes to teenagers, you, you know, whatever you think, it's wrong. Just whatever you think is wrong. You have to think on your feet and be able to react to just about anything at any time, uh, and, and you've got to be able to do it well. I mean, you can't be fumbling around. You've got to do it. So I want to share that when we come back. And in the meantime, folks, we're going to go ahead and take a break. We're going to uh, cut out of here so Israel National Radio can take care of some business. So, Adam, we'll catch you on the other side. See you soon. The Torah states that Jewish people must wear fringes called tzitzit on the four corners of their garments with a techelet colored thread. According to the Talmud, techelet was a bluish color produced from a sea creature. The origin of the dye was lost during the centuries of war and exile until 1958 
when the French zoologist discovered a snail called Murex, which produced a blue-purple dye. During the same period, unaware of that discovery, Rabbi Gershon Henoch Leiner, the Regina Rebbe, found a type of cuttlefish which produced an identical dye. Within two years, thousands of his students were wearing blue threads on their tzitzit. Today, talits with blue techelet strings are widely available in Israel and other Jewish communities. The revival of this ancient Jewish tradition is a triumph for the Jewish people. This Jewish History Moment has been brought to you by Israel National Radio. Shalom and welcome back, everybody. We appreciate you sticking around for the second half of our Noahide Nations show. Appreciate you spending an hour with us. And Adam and I have been talking about some of the extreme things that occur that have to be dealt with if you, you know, once you make the decision to become a, a Noahide, start following Torah for a for a Gentile. Some of the things you might encounter, as I mentioned, as we were closing out the first half, I was going to share a story with you about this uh, teenage granddaughter. Her, you know, mom and dad uh, wound up catching her in a lie. I think it had something to do with school and you know, the teacher got involved and all this. So it was, you know, pretty big thing. I mean, it was nothing to, to sneeze at. The Both parents confronted her in a fashion that was, I don't ever want you to lie to me ever again kind of discussion. Sure. Immediately upon hearing this, the grand, grandchild takes the position of, what about Santa Claus? What about the Easter Bunny? What about the Tooth Fairy? What about, what about, in essence, saying, look, Mom and Dad, you've been lying to me all of these years. Why can't I lie? In a way, they're acquiring this trait from you. Even though we know that, you know, doing the Christmas thing, you're trying to be like everybody else, you're giving gifts, and, you know, it's all out of love and and all of that, but yet it exists in, in a lie. And then if you start talking about religion, now you're asking somebody to believe in something that uh, can't be seen, uh, can't be heard. You don't know if it exists. What do you do? That, as far as you know, or they know, that's a lie also. This idea, again, of thinking the way you want it to resolve itself, in most cases, isn't going to resolve itself that way, especially when it comes to kids because they're like sponges they're willing to listen but i'll guarantee you they got ammunition to come back at you with the first thing is with anything if you're going to take a position on something you have to be comfortable with your own position secondly teenagers i know because i've taught them i've worked with them sometimes teenagers are just looking to throw something in your face to deflect the fact that they know they're doing something wrong Oh yeah. <laughs> so the first thing, first things first, you you've got to be comfortable with who you are in your own skin and recognize you're dealing with a child, not with an adult, and you have to act like an adult. That's the secret to dealing with that kind of thing. I agree. I know they'll throw anything in your face that they can. They'll do it. They're clever. They're sharp witted. They got a lot more energy than you do, and they will argue with you all night long if they have to. I've seen it. And I've experienced it. One of my first uh, uh, experiences with this as a RA. Working at the college, one of the kids was doing some violation of the rules, and I told him why it was wrong, and 
he 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 disagreed, and he gave me a reason. I gave him another reason. He gave me a reason. I gave him a reason. Four hours later, and I'm not exaggerating <laughs> at all. Four hours later, I finally had to say good night, and that was the end of the conversation. I understand when I talk about thinking, you have to think of it a certain way. It's to help you become comfortable with what's what's going on. If you're dealing with an adult and you need a way to think about it to give them a little bit of leeway, your spouse, your parents, whatever else. It's a way for you to think about them in a positive way because sometimes what happens is, is let's say, for example, you're a kid. Dad's a preacher. <laughs> Dad suddenly turns around and says, no, we're Noahides now. And the kid's like, well, wait a second. You've been teaching us lies this this entire time or even the spouse, you, this is a lie? No, it's not. You weren't engaging in a lie. It wasn't a lie to you. To you, it was a reality. It was reality. You recognize that you had inherited a tradition that was not true. And as soon as you recognize that, you stepped out of it. You stepped away from it. And that's the way you, you have to think as an individual about other people. You have to try to give people the benefit of the doubt as much as you possibly can. Well, and I think that's entirely correct. One of the easiest, I shouldn't say one of the easiest ways, but one of the quickest ways to disarm this whole situation is to admit that, you know what, I was wrong. Sure. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with being wrong. At, at, that, at that moment, people, whether they're adults or, or children, it doesn't matter, just kind of deflates their argument. Yeah. Because now you're more or less agreeing with them, but you're now t- transforming it from a lie to where, I was wrong, mm-hmm. and here are the reasons why, just like you said. Mm-hmm. And that will that will usually take care of it. And then, of course, comes the hard part, uh, which is kind of sh- trying to share with them what it is you were wrong about yeah. and why you were wrong about it. And if they're very diligent and are good at doing homework, uh, they'll uh, start studying this out because, you know what, I don't care, uh, young children, teenagers, it doesn't matter. Kids want to emulate their parents. Yes. Even as much as it seems like they want to rebel against them, they wind up emulating them. So they're going to want to, you know, once again, once they get past this whole idea of the change, I mean, it's a radical change, then you can move forward. And here again, all you can really do is share the love, baby. Share the love. And if you sure. do that, they're going to be more willing to start checking, start asking questions. And even if it's one question a month, that's one more than you were getting before. And, you know, as a as a parent, once again, not to uh, overstress this, I think you can't stress it enough, your behavior and what you do is paramount when you're around your child. Because, like you said, they're going to emulate you. They want to emulate you. And at the same time, also like you said, they're always looking for ammunition, too. Right. The best way to to take ammunition away and the best way to give your, your children something positive to model is by you yourself being as consistent as possible. And when you find out you've made a mistake, admit it, move on, change the behavior, let them know. I thought I was supposed to be doing this. Turns out I was supposed to be doing this. It'll work out. A kid will have more respect for you. I think most people have a lot of respect for somebody who's willing to admit when they're wrong. Absolutely. And when they're willing to say, I'm sorry, you know, I made a mistake. I think people have a lot of respect for that because it's so hard to do. And, and a lot of people are completely unwilling to do it. I know personally for me, I'm sorry was, was something that I would never say. Even if I knew I was wrong, I would never say it. Right. Usually I'm right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, there, so therefore it counts. Is right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think uh, the, the main thing, too, is, again, whether it be your spouse or your children, I should say, and or your children, 
you don't want to force them to do anything. They're going to have to come to this on their own. Uh, any yeah. any uh, rabbi, this is what they're going to tell you, is that they need to come to this decision on their own. No amount of, of coercion on your part is going to uh, get them to accept this in their heart. And that's where it needs to be accepted. You know, my suggestion is do not force anything on anybody. If they want to go to church, they go to church. If they want to, you know, continue on with that, fine. Doesn't mean you have to go to church. I mean, you can still stand your ground and and just, you know, simply make it known that this is how I feel, and I, I still love you, but. You know, I just I, I can't go knowing what I know now. My father-in-law has a great saying for this. Cool. When he, whenever it comes to dealing with people, when you have this issue of where you are versus where somebody else is, the way you think of it is this: others may, but I may not. And the idea behind it is, you can't judge somebody else. Right. I, I have to be at my level. I have to be where I am, and I have to let them be where they are. But one thing I will say that, and this is very important: if your children see or your wife sees that the reason that a marriage or family is being torn asunder is because of your attachment to Torah, you can bet that they will never want to have anything to do with Torah. Right, because that's the that's the gasoline on the fire. That is. At that point. And so it's your responsibility as a person who's taking Torah upon themselves not associate anything, anything negative with the Torah. Let them see what a positive thing the Torah is, how Torah brings the family closer together, how Torah makes mommy and daddy better mommies and daddies and better husbands and wives. Right. And the key is the word, let them see. That means you are doing. Right. You are are, are keeping the seven mitzvot. You are doing the things that Hashem expects of you. And in doing that, that is going to be, as they say, a light to all those around you, not sure. just your family, people at work, people, your neighbors. I mean, it just doesn't matter, your friends. If you are changing, they will note the change, and then maybe they'll ask. Right. And if they do, then there you go. You've got your opportunity. Hashem has provided it for you. Now what do you do with it? Now you have to take <laughs> advantage of it. Don't always be ready for that question. Right. Because I'll guarantee you it is going to come. So, Adam, this has been fun. Um, I, You know, I'm almost tempted to say, let's do a couple more of these. Because I can sitting here thinking, doing this, that there are there are some other extreme situations that one has to deal with when they, you know, decide to follow uh, Hashem's Torah is a Noahide, is a is a, a righteous Gentile. Sure. So you know maybe we can do this. I think this would be kind of cool. Let's do this for the next few weeks. What do you think? Sounds good to me. Okay, Adam, that sounds good to me. Let's uh, go ahead and roll right into Rabbi David Katz' teaching for this week. Sounds great. Hi, I'm Rabbi David Katz. Thank you for joining us this week. Today we're going to talk about the Torah of Shem and why there is no fear of that Torah having been lost over, what's it been, about 3,000 years. We're going to say that the Torah was not lost in 3,000 years, give or take, of Shem, that it's never to be forgotten or lost. And the question is, where is that Torah today? Okay, we're going to end up at Mount Sinai. And we know that Shem in the Midrash, he ended up at Mount Sinai as Shem had been offering the Torah for 400 years in its purest form of arriving to conclusions. Question to an answer. All the time, an algorithmic thought process. Calculate, crunch the numbers. 
all the time, taking all the parts and crunching, 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 listening to all the options, and taking all the details and formulating an answer. That is the Torah of Shem and Aver. This in Hebrew is called the Halacha, the law. But we're not using it here in particular of law. We are saying it's an algorithmic conclusion, like a Google search engine. You take in all the, all the details, you crunch, you crunch, and you arrive to an answer. Shem's Torah is about arriving to conclusions. The ability of Torah is to figure it out. Everybody has the ability, if you really use the, the muscles of the brain and the mind, more the mind than the brain, seichel in Hebrew, intellect, a higher intellect, where it processes spiritual light. It's like an eyeball. The retina of the eye metabolizes light and turns it into something. The eyeball works. The mind operates the same way. To metabolize concepts in spiritual form and arrive to a conclusion. Something tangible that you can see, feel, and touch. A conclusion. To be able to say, not why is it this way, why is it that way, why is it this way, why is it that way. But rather, in wisdom in Hebrew, Chochmah, is the letters that spells the power of what? What is the answer to this question? The answer is as such. That is the Torah of Shem and Aver. Shem and Aver's Torah, then, now that we know what it is, what, where is it? Shem's offering that, that Torah of conclusion process for 400 years. He ends up meeting Abraham, gives over everything he knows to Jacob. Only Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have the ability to be on par of the, the, the way of ascension rather than status quo or descension. Of maintaining the Torah to be a nation of priests. To maintain the power and magnitude of the Torah of Shem to calculate an alive process. Not just dead and apparent repeating things, but to keep it going. In Torah, this is called Sofer, a scribe. To create new Torah, new Torah, all on the same plateau level or the way of ascension. All the time climbing. That Torah was accepted by the forefathers. Shem is going gonna, is gonna to go to the desert to die where he'll sit there for 1300 years waiting for King Solomon to release him. To shed his body, which will be buried in Israel. Shem will ascend to his place as the head of the yeshiva, the academy of learning in the Garden of Eden. His soul actually becomes physical, just like the Torah of Shem. A spiritual thing in nature actually becomes tangible. Now the Torah that Shem, as he emerged with Mount Sinai, the giving of the Torah, as he asked Solomon, what happened in the year 2448? Solomon tells him the Torah was given. Shem's mission is complete, the Torah is given. In the categorization or the clothing of the Torah of Moses. The Torah of today is the garment of the Torah of Shem. The Torah of today has in it all the possibilities of the wisdoms of the world to get to the Torah of Shem. Now, that's very fine that the Jewish people are learning the Torah of Moses. And we're supposed to teach the light to the nations of the Torah of Moses. And Moses is a reincarnation of Shem. Shem is spelled Shin Mem. Moses is spelled Shin Mem in a hay. The Shem is the letters of Moses. Moshe. Now it's very nice that you want to teach the Torah of Moses to the world. And everybody can subscribe to that and say, okay, we're here to learn Torah, we have seven laws, and then we're connected to the Torah of Moses. But there must be 
that original sublime Torah of arriving to conclusions, thought process, intellect, metabolizing spirituality, the Torah of Shem. Where is it? Is it gone? Can't be gone, because the Torah of Moses is predicated on that Torah. And we want to have equality here. Where is the Torah of Shem? So we know that the academies of Shem and Ava are all over the world. We said that there's at least seven different academies. There's Aver and Beersheva, Shem and Beersheva, that's two. Nineveh, three. Garden of Eden, four. Jerusalem, five. Outside the land, six. The Jewish academies, seven. And the Jewish academies are all over the world. And the academies of Shem are all over Israel. The Yeshivas, the academies of Isaac are all over Israel. Israel is a holy land. One big academy of learning Torah experience. Of Shem and Moses. But it's been given to the Jewish people, so it's weighted more heavily to Moses. Thus the Jewish people are in the Jewish land. So outside the land of Israel, where do we find this Torah? And we know that the academies of the Jewish people are all over the world. All over New York, and LA, and Miami, and England, and Germany, and all through Europe before the Holocaust. Most of the world has Jewish, Jewish learning somewhere, somehow. So the Noahites are supposed to learn in the Jewish way all over the world. But how could that be? There must be some form of the Torah of Shem and Aver in its purest form in the world. And we can even say, aren't the Jews missing that, 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 that piece of history and time to identify where the Torah of Moses even comes from? You can get so far down a road that you forgot where you came from. So yeah, you're involved in the Torah of Moses today, but where did you come from? To be disconnected from that is actually more, more harmful than, than to go forward. You forgot where you came from and what you're doing. Then you become self, self, self-absorbent into yourself, into your own cause. You become egocentric and ethnocentric. That's more counterproductive than anything. That's what we have today. Yet coming out of the world, there's a large amount of Noahides. And they want answers. Just like Shem's Torah produces answers, they want answers. And they have a right to those answers. But the question is, how do these Noahides know that there are answers? Who says they even have valid questions? Who gives them the right to have all these valid questions that they seek divine answers? The answer is, that is the Torah of Shem in them. The Torah of Shem is never to be forgotten. The Noahides have the Torah of Shem in them. What is that that's bothering you if you're a Noahide? What is it that that's bothering you if you're a Jew? When the Jew says, I want to figure it out. What is that? He wants an answer. Most people today aren't even sensitive enough to realize that they want an answer. They're, they're placated with, oh, you know, we'll ask someone else, we'll figure it out later. Then you ask them tomorrow, they get frustrated. Well, it's not that big of a deal, don't bother me. But the Noahide has been gone for a long time out of the study hall, and he really has questions. But there's a concept in Torah called face-to-face and back-to-back. When the two nations, the Jewish people and the Noahides, are back-to-back, the Noahide talks Noahide talk, the Jew talks Jew talk, and they don't talk to each other, and you're just a Jew and you're just a Noahide, and you don't get along on the same page. But what happens when the two become face-to-face? 
there's like a telephone connection. You know those oh, those that game with the, the cup and the ro- and the rope, and you say hello. You know you talk on the on the ancient telephone joke. But that's what it is when the two get together face to face and talk. All of a sudden, what comes out of the Noahide is pure, one hundred percent grade A Torah of Shem, and that goes directly into the heart of the Jew. And the Jew then sees the truth, clears crystal. And he says, you're asking me that? And they say, yeah, this has been bothering me for a long time. All of a sudden, the Noahide nation is producing pure, pure gold Torah. And that's been embedded in them for so long, brewing in all the academies of the world. The Noahides have been giving that over in a back-to-back methodology. The Jew goes through exile through all the world. And the Noahide is, is in his own language, in his own culture, in his own methodology, giving over that experience of Torah so that one day the Jew will have the tools, experience, and knowledge to deliver the message of the Torah of Shem back to the Noahide. The Noahide essentially is using the Jew as a tool to reflect the Torah back to him, to give him validation, experience, Torah knowledge, and and basically redeem the Noahide. He's been feeling the Torah in him for so long. And a Jew takes those experiences from those academies of Shem throughout the world. Just by going through a particular place, you can extract the pure Torah of Shem and Aver outside the land. And you might not understand it until you get back in the study hall and someone says, I don't know what you mean. You say, oh, it's funny, I was in Philadelphia last week. And a guy did da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and you tell over the story, and all of a sudden, a, real, a mundane story of a happening to you becomes a Torah episode. That's how they got you the message. So that one day, you'll go and deliver the Torah back to them in tools they can understand. In a pure, cooked, ready, prepared meal to enjoy. You have to be one step ahead of them and understand, what are they going to want next? If they're asking me this question now, and, they, and they're going right to the heart of the Torah, I must be prepared to give them the whole Torah. That whole Torah, you're now inspiring each other to bring back the Torah of Shem that's embedded in the Noahide. And when the two speak face to face, you're bringing it out of the Jew. And at that point, the Torah of Moses is synonymous with the Torah of Shem. The Torah is not forgotten. You may have forgotten a lot of Torah over your life. But by being the presence of the Noahides, asking their direct questions, and being responsible and honest enough to give the answer, not an answer, and not an okay answer, but the answer, that is what the Torah Shem commanded, and, 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 and de- demanded, that there must be a calculation to an answer. That's where the Torah is not forgotten. That's where the Torah will live on and sharpen everyone. Moses was, it was told of Moses, he sharpened the Torah like a pilpel kharif, a hot pepper. He added that dimension to the Torah. That dimension that he added to the Torah was the Torah of Shem. The process how to arrive to a conclusion, to an answer. And that's why Shem called Jerusalem Salem or Shalom, meaning complete. That's all for today. Next week we'll go more into these kinds of topics about Shem and the Torah and how it's not forgotten. And that's Rabbi Katz signing off. See you next week. See you next time. Have a great week. 
Folks, that was Rabbi David Katz, and it looks like we're at the top of the hour. Adam, we're going to have to run on out of here real quick. So uh, it was a great show today. I look forward to next week's, and folks, we'll see you next week. And Shabuto. Life has a lot to teach us. Listen to this. Winston Churchill says, We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Would you like to learn more life lessons? Tune in to my brand new show, Life Lessons with Judy Simon, and hear the life lessons that the guests on my show have learned on their journey through life. Tune in to the new show, Life Lessons with Judy Simon, on Israel National Radio.